you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 8 uh, today. And the title of today's sermon is uh, Rejection Redeemed. I sent this, I changed it last night and made, I asked Tina to change it like last night, like 11 or something. I'm very thankful for that. Um, but the, there's this idea that we're going to look at in 1 Samuel when we see that when, when Israel demands a king, God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. And so what we're going to see is that human rejection becomes divine redemption. We don't get to see it immediately in 1 Samuel 8. In fact, in 1 Samuel, there's this tension that develops over the next several chapters. Is a king good or is a king bad? There's a case to be made for for both sides. because They kind of have to hold this intention. But eventually, we're going to see that human rejection does indeed become divine redemption by grace through faith. Because this is not the first time that Israel will reject her king. In fact, we will see generations later that when the true king, Jesus, comes, he is also rejected by men. But in this rejection on the cross, that's the very vehicle by which we are redeemed and ransomed and saved from our sin. So human rejection becomes divine redemption through grace. So I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we will get to work. Starting in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for, uh, were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these are hard words. This is a sad day. This is a disappointing day in the life of the history of Israel when they have rejected Yahweh, their rightful king, in this moment and requesting a substitute instead and then refusing to listen to the wisdom of the voice of Yahweh. Father, this is not just a story about Israel in the time of the judges. This is a story about us even now to this day. We want to be our own kings, and we refuse to hear the words of wisdom. But, Father, we know that as we read these words, we know that they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory because our King Jesus will come and be rejected. And in that rejection, we who should be rejected by God for our sinfulness and our folly are received into the fold and called sons and daughters because we have the divine redemption that Jesus wrought for us on the cross. So, Father, we ask that you would send your spirit even now to attend the preaching, the reading and preaching of this word, so that by it our hearts might be open to the truth, our eyes might be open to see your glory, our ears might be unstopped to receive the grace that we have in these words. Father, we know that if you don't attend this reading and preaching without your spirit, these are words that just go out into the ether. But, Jesus, we know that your grace changes everything, even how we read and receive the words from you. So we ask that you would do that for us this morning by your grace, through our faith, that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to the next until you come back and make us all new, Jesus. We pray this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Do you like your job? Um, you don't have to answer that. I'm not going to make you answer like I asked the kids, but just think about it for a second. Do you like your job? Um, there might be a wide ranging of answers on that, depending on who you are, your personality, and what your job is. Um, I don't know exactly what all of you do for work. Um, and it's not the most important thing about you, to be honest. But I tell you, somebody who does love their job, is, or loved their job was Nelson Molina. Nelson Molina was a garbage man in the city of New York for 34 years. And he was quoted uh, by CNN by saying, I love this job. It's the best job in the world. And uh, I believe him because over the course of his 34-year career as a garbage man in Manhattan, Nelson Molina rescued and reclaimed over 50,000 different treasures that people had thrown out into the trash. And over the course of his time as a garbage man, he would take these things that he found in the trash that people had thrown away, that they had rejected from being in their homes or their apartments, they didn't want anymore, and and Nelson would take them and he'd put them in, at first he started putting them on, on his friend's lockers. In, in their, where they would change to get into their uniform. But then he gathered so many things, he ended up acquiring just an old room. And eventually he took over the warehouse in a, on the second floor of a Department of Sanitation building in Manhattan. And so to this day, you can go to Manhattan, and it's not open to the public, but you can find through various means, you can go into this museum, as it were, of treasures that Nelson Molina has found in the garbage that he has repurposed and redeemed for the display of the their own glory. In this collection, you can find uh, so many different things, guitars, violins, violas, all that work. You could find baseball signed by so many different stars of the Yankees and Mets. You could find a book that was once signed, that was signed by Bette Midler herself. You can find all kinds of original, you know, movie memorabilia things that came out. There is a bevy of treasures in this museum that otherwise people had just 
thrown out and cast aside. But Nelson Molina saw that what some have rejected, he could turn into treasure and put on for the display and the splendor of their glory. Brothers and sisters, that which is rejected can be redeemed and put on display for the splendor of glory through grace. We, as sinful people who reject the reign and rule of our King Jesus, even rejecting Him in time-space history, sending Him to the cross, through that rejection, we experience the vehicle of divine redemption. And so would you look at me, with me now in 1 Samuel 8, and we look at the rejection of Yahweh's kingship, and then the rejection of Yahweh's wisdom. We look at the very first verses in chapter 8. And the thing about chapter 8 in 1 Samuel is that it follows chapter 7. And we learned last week in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7, there was this glorious kind of summation of Samuel's ministry where he was attending uh, to to the role of the judge. He was making this regular and routine circuit around all the the cultic sites in Gilgal and Ramah. And he was worshiping the Lord and judging Israel. And that was good. But here in chapter 8, we get some signs that things aren't so good anymore. The first thing that we see is that Samuel's old. And not that the Bible is ageist, and there's nothing wrong inherently with being old in general, but we have seen thus far that old is usually affiliated with not good. Eli was old and blind and weak and ineffective. And so we see here that Samuel is old and Apparently, Samuel's sons are not unlike Eli's sons. They have perverted justice. They've taken bribes, even though they've been set up as judges themselves. And so not only do we see that there's this kind of familial issue here where Samuel's old and his sons have perverted justice, but we even should notice that Samuel made his sons judges. Now, if you've ever read the book of Judges or you came to our study last year through the book of the Judges, every single judge that was appointed to be the judge was that so, was done so by the, the breath or the spirit or the divine selection of Yahweh himself. There were judges were appointed by Yahweh. They were not dynastically decreed. So, in fact, we see at one point Gideon, after he leads the 300 and defeats the enemies of Israel, the, the people of Israel want to make Gideon their leader. You and your sons rule over us. But Gideon says, no, I'm not going to do that. So we see here in the beginning of 1 Samuel that something's wrong. Samuel's old. His sons are being appointed judges when they shouldn't be, and then they have perverted justice. So we see that there's already the beginning of this rejection of Yahweh's rule and reign. I'm going to pause here, and kids, I'm going to ask you a question. And this is a dangerous question, so parents, I'm sorry. Um, Kids, what is something that you don't have, but you want? Kids, what's something you don't have, but you want? Graham, I saw your hand first, buddy. Gigantic Legos, always with the Legos in this church. Uh, what about you, Leo? Nerf guns. Ooh, I'm sorry, Bob. Uh, Anna, a dog. I'm so sorry, Dave and Mary. Um, Brooklyn, a dog. You like get them though intermittently, and then you have to give them away. That's a whole thing. And your, you want a forever dog, not a foster dog. Um, all right, um, Amelia, a snake. A snake. Um, oh. I had a pet snake. That was cool. Elsie, uh, what about you, sweetheart? A turtle. Okay, so lots of pets and toys. All right, one more, Calvin. Kids? <laughs> 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 
Like arrows in the quiver are one man's children from his youth, but that's a little too much youth, buddy. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, all of those things are great. Snakes, turtles, kids, Legos, Nerf guns, dogs. Those are all wonderful gifts. And maybe you, you might get them later on. But sometimes you have something that you really, really want, but you don't get it. And here, as we begin to see the kind of fracturing and the struggle in the life of Israel, we see Samuel's old, his sons are judges, that's not good, they're perverting justice. We get to see some of the fractures that they have in their life. Now remember, this is t- taking place during the time of the judges when there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes and so all the elders gathered to Samuel and said we want a king like all the other nations we want a king like all the other nations give us a king now we learn from Yahweh's response Samuel takes this to Yahweh and, and, and the Lord says look give them what they want they're not rejecting you they're not rejecting your leadership it's not like that they're so against the judgeship as an office they're rejecting me as their king now this is an odd phrase if you read the Old Testament have this kind of big scope of, of the Old Testament you will notice that from early on there is a hinting that kingdom and kings are going to play an important role in the life of Israel. From as early on as Genesis 17, when God gives the sign of circumcision to Abraham, he says, kings are going to come from your family. Okay. All right. So there's a hint. Then you have later in, in, in Genesis 49, the scepter, that's a royal symbol. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Okay, so there's going to be a king that comes from the family of Abraham. Specifically, it seems like there's going to be a king that comes from the line of Judah. And then you go all the way to the book of Deuteronomy and the, the republication of the law when God is giving Israel a framework for how they should live as his covenant people. And you get to Deuteronomy 17 and you have the rules for when you ask for a king like all the nations around you. This is what your king is going to do. He's not going to amass for himself women. He's not going to amass for himself uh, uh, weapons of warfare. He's not going to amass for himself wealth. He is going to copy for himself the law. He's going to write and copy all of God's law so that he might learn to fear him and, 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 and teach that and live as under the law. That's the kind of king that when you come into the land that you're going to possess, that I'm going to give you, that's the kind of king that you are going to want. Now, when we look at this, we see a king like all the other nations. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a king like all the other nations necessarily. But what the danger is is that when you have fallen sinful people in positions of power, there is great potential for abuse and discomfort and terrible things. And so we saw that happen with Eli's sons and Samuel's sons. These were men in positions of power. They were filled with sin and they went off the rails. So there is a warning against kings, not because you can't be like all the other nations, but if you have a king, it might be like all the other nations where they would indeed amass women, wealth, weapons of war, and, and treat you poorly. And so they're asking... God, they're rejecting Yahweh to be king over them. And specifically, we learn that it's not just because they're asking for a king, because that's kind of hinted at and then provided for, but they're asking for a king to actually act like all the other nations. We learn in chapter, or the end of the chapter, in verse 20, 20 um, we want a king 
He's going to go out before us. He's going to fight our battles for us. We want a king that we can see that's going to go and lead us. We want to reject the kingship of Yahweh, the one who fought the battles for you, because that's what we learned about in chapter 7, right? The Philistines amassed against Israelites. The Israelites went to Samuel. They said, intercede for us, pray to us, pray to Yahweh that he might save us. And and Samuel did. He sacrificed that young lamb. And then Yahweh answered in a thunderclap and destroyed the Philistines. So Yahweh, their king, had been fighting for them. But they said, no, we want a king that we can see, that will fight for us. Their trust is not being placed in Yahweh to deliver them. They're asking for not a bad thing. They're asking for a good thing in a bad way because we are seeing as this plays out, they are not trusting in Yahweh to deliver them, but they're functionally trusting in a new, stronger form of government with a stronger leader to save them, to lead them, and to deliver them. So the immense irony that we see unfolding here in Samuel is that they are confronted with the injustice of Samuel's sons, their perverted justice, their perversion by by bribes, and they are then asking for themselves uh, an immensely unjust, unrighteous thing and rejecting the kingship of Yahweh and saying, we want a king to fight our battles for us. So they rejected the unrighteousness of Samuel's sons and replaced it with their own unrighteousness of rejecting Yahweh as king. This is a dark picture of mankind. We are so prone um, to do this. And, and so what we see here, the implication that we have to wrestle with, because we don't live in a monarchy. We don't have kings the same way that they did. But, but what we have to see is that this paints a, a picture not of our political uh, machinations, but a picture of our own souls. Where we as, as people, as we sang earlier in Psalm 51, we as people evil, being born in sin, being conceived in sin, we are so well versed and so practiced in wanting things our own way, in our own time, by our own means. It's probably not hard to think just kind of conceptually, yeah, like, yes, I know that I should ask God for help. Yeah, he, in fact, is called Ebenezer. We, we, we learned about that in chapter 7. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. We, we should and can ask God for help because we, the Bible tells, talks, us about, talks about doing that. But it is so much easier, so much easier to ask God for help in ways that we want it rather than he offers it. I will offer this example to you. Um, you might be lonely. You might be lonely. And you might be saying, I want a spouse. God, if you would just help give me a spouse, if you help give me a boyfriend, help give me a girlfriend, give me somebody to take away my loneliness. That's not a bad prayer necessarily. A spouse is a good thing to pray for. However, why are you praying for the spouse and not praying for eyes to see how you might build community without a spouse? You see, it's easy to ask for help and it's easy to get fixated on I want something my own way rather than being open to how might God actually answer this prayer. It's not wrong to want somebody to fight your battles for you, God says, but Yahweh's the one, Yahweh was the one supposed to be doing that. 
In fact, up to the time that he had delivered them from Egypt, when Moses writes his song as they celebrate God's deliverance from them, Yahweh is going to be is reigning over them forever. Yahweh Melech, that's the that's the word the word in Hebrew and the verb for king and, and reigning. Yahweh should be king forever. But they're asking for a different kind of king, one they can see, one they can control, as it were. And so when you ask of God for things, are you asking for things in a way that you can kind of control? Or are you open to the fact that God might answer your prayers in his own way? Uh, Another thing you might do is you might talk about um, a particularly difficult season in your life. Maybe you have a difficult roommate or a difficult boss or a difficult relationship and you just you might pray to God, Lord, why don't you just take this difficult person away and out of my life? That's not a wrong prayer, but what would it look like if you prayed for in that moment, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to grow in patience. Thank you for this opportunity to exercise love. Thank you for this opportunity to to bless those who curse me, to turn the cheek. You see, we are so quick to ask God for what we want in our own way and in our sin and in our our own folly. we're, We're not always open to receiving that which God would give us in his own way. And so, Mercy Church, I would implore you and encourage you, open your hands before God. Don't be so fixed and locked in on your own framework of how you think God should act. Because what we see in this moment is that we as sinners are well-practiced in rejecting our God by insisting on our own way. And I would implore you to be aware of that and to, and to grow in the, the recognition that that is a possibility. Because sometimes... Sometimes the worst case scenario happens and God gives you exactly what you ask for. We see this in verse 9. He says, obey the, obey the voice of the people, but warn them as to what is to come. Sometimes God gives you exactly what you ask for, and that is a terrible and dark day. And we see in the second half of this chapter that even though we see the folly of our own ways, that does not do anything to necessarily change our hearts. So we see Israel, um, God acquiescing to Israel's request, being absolved of any uh, culpability of their moral failure, and we see that also they reject his wisdom. And so uh, in verse 9, Yahweh instructs Samuel to solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. You see, God in his mercy and his kindness uh, does not shirk the, uh, the impact and effect of sin. The Bible paints this horribly dark picture of humanity that we are prone to reject him. But God is then very clear and very kind about saying, this is what is going to happen then. We saw in, in, in Genesis 2, the day of you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day you will surely die. God does not sugarcoat the result of sin. And so God in his wisdom begins to warn his people, this is what's going to come because you were about to get exactly what you asked for. Now, kids... Um, I'm going to ask you another question, um, and I've asked this question before, and again, this is a moderately dangerous question, but what's something that your parents tell you not to do? What's something, Anna? Not to draw on the walls. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Leo. Not to play with mice? Knives. Knives, yeah, that's good. What about you, Margaret? Not to go on the, the road? Yeah. Um, uh, oh, Brooklyn. 
Don't jump on the bed, Aaron. Don't jump on the couch, Graham. Last one. You can't have a dollar. I knew there was going to be some connection between those two questions. Um, now, all right, Piper, one more. This is scary. Yeah, I don't really like it when you walk on the couch. That's for sitting, and I'm usually sitting there, and I don't want you to walk on me. Now, here's the thing. I promise you, I promise you, kids, that your parents aren't afraid of you having fun. It's not like they're like, oh, we know how fun it is to draw on the walls, so we just we don't want them to draw on the walls. It's not like that they, they know the streets that's really fun place to play or that knives are really fun to play with and like they just want to keep you from having fun. Your parents have certain rules for you because they love you and they want to keep you safe and they want to protect you and they want you to flourish in this life, not with you know fingers that accidentally get removed because you've been playing with knives or, or, or something, but your parents love you and so they give you rules about how life works best. When God tells Samuel to warn Israel about what's going to happen when they get a king, it's not because God is rubbing salt in the wound. He is saying, I want to tell you very honestly about what is going to happen. Because again, remember, Israel asks for a king to be like all the other nations. And, and, and that's okay in and of itself. Like you can have a king, but Deuteronomy 17 gave this very, very specific, this is what your king is going to be like. And so what Samuel doesn't do here is he doesn't launch into, do you know how bad the Philistine king is? You know how bad the Canaanite king is? You know how bad the whatever other nation's king is? No. He talks about the, the kind of boilerplate garden variety. This is what a king is going to be like. And the operative word that you should have heard as I was reading or as you read along is take. The king is going to take, to take, to take. Up to this point in the life of Israel, remember there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel was, a, was kind of a tribal collective. The family unit would have been the primary unit that you would have been made up into the 12 tribes. And each, each tribe had their own allotment in the promised land um, and, and based on God's kind of divisions of the land. And in this time, your family, your household produced stuff. You had, there was cattle, bulls, sheep, there was produce, grapes, olives, wheat. All of that was for the family and some of it the first fruits, the best portion of it, was used to worship God. So the only thing that the families were giving up were things used in the worship of God. But here, when a king reigns over you, he's going to take. He's going to take your sons and draft them into his armies. He's going to take your daughters and put them to work as perfumers and bakers. He's going to take the best of your land. Even if there's a famine, he's going to take. And his officials aren't going to run out of food, but you are because he's going to take. He's going to take. He's going to take. There is a shift going on from the family, from the tribe, now to the monarchy and the king and the court. So when you get exactly what you want... Everything is going to change. Everything is going to change. Whereas you would only give out your produce and family and, and, and animals and stuff to worship, it's going to be taken to feed the machinations of this new monarchy, to feed the political and, and administrative machinations of this new thing that you're building. So, And it's going to end up like this. 
He's going to take. He's going to take. He's going to take. He's going to take. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, verse 18, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. I want you to hear echoes of Exodus. In those days they were slaves in Egypt and they cried out and the voice of the cry rose to Yahweh on high and Yahweh came and delivered them and said, I will be your king forever. But in this day, he will take, he will take, he will take and you will be like slaves. And you can't go back to Egypt and I'm not going to deliver you because this is the thing that you have chosen for yourself. So what we see here in in 1 Samuel 8 The wisdom of Yahweh, how life works best, how life is flourishing. The wisdom of Yahweh is rejected and replaced with the form of their own eyes and their own invention and their own desire. Because here's the thing, verse 19, the people refused. It's like they stuck their fingers in their ears. They they closed their ears off. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations, that he might be going out to war and fighting for us. The very thing that God's law and wisdom was attempting to mitigate is the very thing they're asking for. They want a strong man, a strong leader with a strong standing army that's going to go out and going to take care of business. They knew that the ark didn't work. Remember that in chapter 4 where they brought the ark? The ark's going to go fight for us and deliver us from the Philistines. And at this point, they're kind of replacing the ark with a human king. Maybe that king is going to go out and that king is going to bring us victory. That king is going to lead us uh, to salvation rather than this king who has already done that for us time and time and time again. They reject the design of Yahweh and embrace the design of the world. And just like God warned Adam, on the day of that you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Knowing the right answer does not mitigate the rejection of wisdom. Knowing the right thing does not mitigate doing the wrong thing. So fallen people with fallen impulses, full of rebellion, don't need knowledge that's not going to be enough to deliver them. And so, like I said earlier in the, in the prayer of confession, we all, like sheep, have turned astray. We each do what? Turn to his own way. We choose our own way, our own path, our own design to our own peril. Because that choice of rejecting the wisdom and design of God leads to sure and certain death. It says in Proverbs that the fool's way is right in his own eyes. And so we, kind of, not kind of, exactly like Israel, play this story out every single day of our own lives when we reject the wisdom of God and we live exactly how we want to, how we are comfortable in a way that we can fit into the world around us. Because do you remember that when God gave that law after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, he gave them a law to be unique, to be special, to be different from the world around them, to be different than the nations, that they might be Yahweh's unique and special treasured possession. They were going to be this special treasure on display for His glory throughout all the world. And He gave them that law so they might be different. 
not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of the display of his glory. And so what they are doing here in 1 Samuel 8 is what we do all the time, is we reject the design of God that he gave to us in wisdom, and we just want to be like everyone else around us. It is so much easier to fit in than to stand out. It is so much easier in our world to, to be in a conversation with a coworker and when something controversial comes up where you might want to share your faith, to just take the path of least resistance and to keep your mouth shut and to kind of make everybody happy and to go on with your life. It is so much easier to watch the same movies and the TV shows and wear the same clothes and use the same media and listen to the same podcasters and read the same blogs. It's so much easier to just be exactly like the world around us because that's so much less effort. It's so much less effort to to swim with the current than against it. And, And here's the thing. We have to understand, yeah, like living as Christians, we're not called to be different for the sake of being difficult. Right? God doesn't say, be different because I want you to be uncomfortable. We are called to be different because we are called to be holy and distinct and separate from the world around us. That does not mean that it is the worst thing in the world to listen to the same music as unregenerate people. That does not mean that it's the worst thing in the world to watch The Office or Parks or whatever show you're watching, I don't know what it is. But what it does mean is that we have a vision of life as Christians that God says, this is how I want you to live. This is how life works best. And I'm calling you to be different, not because I want you to be different, but because I want you to display my glory before a watching world. And so when you are tempted to just Make yourself like everybody else because it's more comfortable and easier. I would encourage you to be reminded that Jesus did not die to save you to give you an easy, safe, comfortable life. Jesus died to save you that you might be forgiven of your sins, ransomed from the fall, and then put on display for the splendor of the glory of Yahweh before a watching world. Your life is a testimony to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And if your life looks the exact same as the world around you, what is what has Jesus done for us? If our lives look exactly the same as the culture around us, and I, and I mean that in, in, in the kind of two poles, I mean that on the, if we are no different from the kind of urbane, intellectual, sophisticated people, we don't want to look stupid as Christians, or if we, if we, um, kind of fall into that conservative trap if we just listen to the right conservative talking heads, if we just listen to, I mean, Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson, you know, and if we're just like the world around us, then we're going to be okay. That is not what God called you to. God calls you not to be like the world. God calls you to be distinct because he wants his name to be made famous, not some particular cultural expression of what you think is good. And so I would urge you that as people. God calls us to be distinct and to embrace his design and his wisdom, not for your own comfort, but for the display of his glory. And here's a scary thing, is we can hear this, we can know this, and we can still refuse to act on it. You know, we think a lot of times as parents, if I just send my kids to the right schools, they're going to be okay. If I send them to the right private schools or if I homeschool them, they're going to be okay. Or if, if I read the right things and get the right answers, you know, then I'm going to be okay. But here's the problem. It's not that you and I are ignorant savages. 
that need to be enlightened with some kind of new knowledge. It's that we are irascible rebels who don't want Jesus. By nature, you don't want Jesus. I don't want the kingdom of God. I want the kingdom of John. And when we live there, when we stay there, we are deserving of being cast out and rejected by God himself, cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and the fire does not go out into the trash heap of Gehenna, into hell itself. That is where our rejection of Yahweh's kingship and of his wisdom deserves us to go. And so knowledge... Even the best kind of knowledge is not going to rectify our rebellious hearts. It's not going to capture our rebellious hearts. We need more than knowledge. We need a Savior. And so God, in His mercy and His grace, sends our King Jesus, who reveals the righteousness of God, who embodies all the wisdom of God, who comes to us and rescues us in the hour of need. And as we said in our call to worship We can rightly say two things. Who can stand before this holy God? Who can stand before this perfectly righteous and perfectly wise Savior? None of us. That's the answer. But we also read in that call to worship from Psalm 76 that even the wrath of men will praise him. And so that means two things. One, those who are justly deserving of God's wrath and displeasure, that is to the praise and the glory of God. You and I want justice. We all want justice, and it is just when a holy God condemns sinners to hell, and that is to the praise of the glory of His grace. But, but, divine redemption came from human rejection. And so we, as sinners, rejected this Messiah King Jesus over us. You can think about in that Passion Week narrative in the Gospels when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey as the ruling and reigning King of Israel, and he is put in jail, and they said, no, we want Barabbas. You crucify that one. They rejected the king of Israel, the right, the good, the true king of Israel, the one that's going to come after Saul, after David, after Rehoboam, after all of that successive lines of kings and the kingdom crumbling. Jesus is going to come in his grace, in his wisdom, in his righteousness. And that one, him, our Savior, is rejected by men. And he goes where? To the cross where the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, where the full weight of God's wrath against human rejection is, is laid, is poured out upon Christ. It's poured out upon Christ. And so what God does, he reveals the absolute perfect standard of holiness that we could never measure up to. But in his grace and in his wisdom, he says, this is for you. Because when you look to Jesus in faith, All of that wrath of God is averted. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, not so that we could be enlightened, but that we might become the righteousness of God. And so all of that perfect righteousness of Jesus is imputed, is given to us, is put in our account so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect record of Christ. And when we are in Christ, when we look to Christ in faith, we are filled with the Spirit, And the Spirit then leads us in all truth. And so that you and I who reject wisdom, who struggle to embrace our own folly and repress the wisdom of God, that Spirit leads us in all wisdom and understanding and righteousness. So it is not by your own sufficiency or your own merits or your own suppression of your own guilt and sin. It is by the grace of a perfect and holy God who came not to enlighten you, 
but to rescue you. You who even reject the kingship and reject the wisdom of God. Human rejection becomes the vehicle for divine redemption only by grace and grace alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that we are indeed evil and born in sin, and we need your grace and your mercy to come rescue us and ransom us from the fall. We know that you've done that for us in Christ. Father, help us to understand that what it looks like to live with divine wisdom, to, to be distinct from the world, not to embrace the values of the world, um, just because it's easier to be like the world than it is to be like you. We ask that as you do this in us through Christ, that we become more and more like our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend, our King Jesus, who is full of righteousness and tr- truth, and we have grace through his life and death and resurrection. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.